are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hello, everybody. My name is David Guzik, and I'm very pleased that you could join me today for a time of question and answer over our YouTube channel. Uh, What we like to do as often as we can is on a Thursday afternoon, I come together and what we do is we take your questions, though I normally begin with a lead question that comes in from social media or a comment to one of our YouTube videos or something like that. So we'll get to that in just a moment. But again, I want to welcome you and I especially want to welcome our TWR360 audience. We send this... uh, YouTube video out in a partnership with TWR. It's also hosted or at least available on their website. And we're very pleased with our partnership with Trans World Radio 360. This is a ministry that's been around a long time getting the gospel out in wonderful ways. And TWR 360 is their online presence, which is growing and growing. And we want to welcome any viewers that are here over from the TWR 360 site. As for our time here today, what we want to do is just talk simply about a question that comes in for our lead question, then take your questions. When you write your questions in on the comments on the YouTube chat, then our uh, our uh, moderator, Devin, goes through them, selects them, and sends them forth on our way. Okay, so our lead question for today is simply this, was Jesus a Nazarite? And it comes from Matt. He sent this question over Instagram. And here's Matt's question. He says, hello, David. A question arose that I thought I'd ask you for direction. The question is, was Jesus a Nazarite? May I ask you to direct me to the research? I'm sure you've had this question asked. Uh, If you uh, asked before, uh, let me know. Now, uh, let me just say, I I appreciate that from Matt in understanding that if I've dealt with the question before, maybe I could just refer him. Folks, if you go through our question and answer and just sort of uh, search through our website, you'll see that we've dealt with a lot of the questions that you might have. Of course, we're pleased to deal with them here on a Thursday afternoon. But um, again, we keep a stockpile in the YouTube videos and on the website, EnduringWord.com. If you search through the question and answer blog area, you'll find a lot of answers to the questions that you're looking. But Matt, I don't remember dealing with this specific question before. And so I'm happy to deal with it now, making it our lead question. And If I were to answer the question, was Jesus a Nazarite, the quick answer would simply be no. Jesus was not a Nazarite. But there's really more to explain than just that very quick answer. For example, Matthew chapter 2, verse 23 is really the relevant passage. Let's take a look at that together. It says, And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, I find this passage very interesting. Of all of Matthew's references to the Old Testament and to the prophets, this one is one of the most interesting. And one of the reasons why it's most interesting is there's no specific passage found in the Old Testament that says these given words, he shall be called a Nazarene. You know, most of the time, Matthew, of course, he loves to quote the Old Testament prophets and show how Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, is the fulfillment of the Hebrew prophets. But there is no line in the Hebrew prophets, not in Isaiah, not in Hosea, not in Jeremiah, not Ezekiel, not Daniel, not Zechariah, could go on and on. There is no specific line in the prophets that says, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, some people think that what Matthew meant by this was that the Messiah would be a Nazarite. Now, the Nazarite vow was an institution in ancient Israel whereby someone could commit themselves to a special vow of consecration. It's described in Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. And when a person was under the Nazarite vow, 
they were regarded as being specially devoted to God, and they expressed it in at least these three ways. Again, this is from the text in Numbers chapter 6. Number one, they would leave their hair uncut. Number two, they would drink no wine, and they would eat nothing that came from the grapevine. No raisins, no grapes, no grape juice, nothing. Then third, they would avoid any kind of contact with anything that was dead. Uh, Now, you know, a cooked or processed meat was different, but the carcass of a dead animal, or especially a dead person, which was thought to be even more defiling, under the Nazarite vow, you avoided any kind of contact with any kind of dead body, human or animal. Now, under the Nazarite vow, doing those things would be for a certain period of time, For example, maybe somebody would do 60 days or 30 days or 90 days, maybe even a year. Samson in the Old Testament was a special case in the book of Judges. He was someone who was dedicated to a Nazarite vow from his birth and all throughout his life, though he wasn't always faithful to that vow. Now, Acts chapter 18 verse 18 tells us something very interesting regarding the Nazarite vow. Acts 18.18 tells us of a vow that the apostle Paul made that involved the cutting of the hair. See, seemingly, if somebody were to take a Nazarite vow for a year, let's say, oftentimes what they would do is they would cut their hair or shave it close, something like that, at the very beginning of the vow. Then they would let their hair grow out all the days of that vow. Then when the vow was completed, they would cut their hair again and offer it before God at the tabernacle or the temple. So here in Acts 18.18, Paul makes a vow that involves the cutting of the hair, which again would have been done at the conclusion of a Nazarite vow. It's interesting to think that Paul, as a believer, I mean, he's a servant, he's an apostle of Jesus, he's a missionary, he's a church planter, he still thought it was okay for him to make and to fulfill a Nazarite vow. So what about Jesus? Now, We must say that we do know that Jesus was a remarkably consecrated man. There's no doubt about that. But it seems that Matthew is not referring to the idea of a Nazarite in Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. Those words, he shall be called a Nazarene, do not seem to indicate that Jesus was a Nazarite. It's just talking about his connection to the town of Nazareth. Now, from what we know about the life of Jesus, it doesn't seem that he followed or fulfilled the vow of a Nazarite as is described in Numbers chapter 6. Let's begin first by saying, when it comes to the uh, not cutting the hair, well, we don't know anything about the hair of Jesus. We don't know what length it was. We don't know what color it was. We can suppose the color of hair just from the normal kind of color that a person would have in their complexion and their hair, that part of the world at that time. But we don't know anything specifically about the length of the or the hair keeping habits of Jesus. But we do know that Jesus did drink wine and or grape products. He even made wine was associated with that. That is something that... A person under a Nazarite vow would not do. We know example for what we call the Last Supper. Jesus definitely shared wine with his disciples. So that would have disqualified him from a Nazarite vow, at least at that period. And we also know that Jesus did come in contact with dead bodies. Now, admittedly, when Jesus came into contact with a dead body, it came back to life again. But still, it was coming into contact with a dead body. So we see from this that we have no knowledge whatsoever. Certainly, Jesus did not keep a Nazarite vow through the entire years of his ministry. Whether or not he took on a Nazarite vow at some time in his life, we just don't know. It can't be said. So back to Matthew chapter 2, verse 23, where it says that he would be a Nazarene. There's something peculiar in the way that Matthew words this reference. He does not, as he does in many other places, he does not mention any specific prophet. In many other places, Matthew will say, as it is said in the prophet Isaiah, as it is said in the prophet Jeremiah, as it is said by this prophet. He doesn't say anything like that. 
All Matthew does is he does not mention a specific prophet or any one prophet, but in a very generalized way, Matthew chapter 2, verse 23 says that it would be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. You see, Matthew didn't quote any specific passage, but he just gave the general expectation of the prophets of the Hebrew scriptures that the Messiah would be humble and would be rejected, just the kind of person to come from a place like Nazareth. Now, I do have to add this. If there's any specific passage in Matthew's mind, it could have been, I'm not saying it's likely, but it could have been Isaiah 11.1. Let me show you that verse. Isaiah 11.1 says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots or his roots. Now, the Hebrew word translated branch here sounds like nazir. It's not the same word, but it sounds similar to it. And so there's some people who think that Matthew had Isaiah 11, 1 in mind. But again, this seems to me a strange connection, especially because he would have said, as it is said in the prophet or the prophet Isaiah. No, this very generalized reference of saying here that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, means that really he's just speaking of a generalized uh, messianic expectation. That's my estimation of it. Now, I need to share one other thing with you. It's a great quote from Charles Spurgeon. Uh, I'm going to put it up on the screen for you, but I really like this quote, Charles Spurgeon. He's speaking about this whole idea of this generalized reference to Jesus as a Nazarene, as associated with Nazareth. He says here, he meant that the prophets have described the Messiah as one who would be despised and rejected of men. They spoke of him as a great prince and conqueror when they described his second coming, but they set forth his first coming when they spoke of him as a root out of a dry ground without former comeliness, who, when he should be seen, would have no beauty that men should desire him. The prophets said that he would be called by a despicable title, and it was so, for his countrymen called him a Nazarene. So, Jesus was certainly called a Nazarene. There's no doubt about it. He was from Nazareth, and he was associated with a lowly and even despised place, but he was not a Nazarite. Now, one other thing to say about this that I think is relevant. Paul's example in Acts chapter 18 shows us that these kinds of vow can have a place in a healthy Christian life so long as they aren't seen as the ground of someone's right standing with God, or as long as they're not treated in a legalistic manner. Other than that, then certainly people can have an appropriate place for these kind of vows of dedication in their Christian life. Well, that's it for our lead question. Thank you, Matt, for that question. Was Jesus a Nazarite? No, he was a Nazarene, not a Nazarite. So now we're going to head over to the questions that are coming in here on the live chat. Uh, Devin forwards them to me, and the first one comes from Lucho. And he says, if a person believed in Jesus, received the Holy Spirit, but then went back to the world, does, that, does the Holy Spirit leave that person? Okay, Lucho, I think part of the issue that you're talking about here is what we can see and what we can't see in a person. I would say that if a person is truly born again by God's Spirit, truly made a new creature in Christ Jesus, truly uh, adopted into the family of God, uh, truly made a king and a priest with Jesus Christ, uh, truly made an heir of eternal life. It's very difficult to see how a person can lose all those things as if God strips them from that person. But you see, we can't see that status in another person. And if a person receives the Holy Spirit, how can we actually see it or know it looking from the outside? Now, I do believe that it's possible to see it or know it 
from the inside. In other words, the Bible does tell us that the Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are the children of God. I do believe it's possible to have that kind of true assurance in someone's Christian life. But looking at somebody else's life from the outside, how would we know? Now, you could say, well, the Holy Spirit used that person in a specific way. Look, the Holy Spirit used them to preach. The Holy Spirit used them to heal. The Holy Spirit used them to evangelize. Surely they had the Holy Spirit. No, stop just a minute. Don't you remember that Jesus warned that there would be many people who would come to him on the day of judgment and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things in your name? And he talked about amazing things, including miraculous things that people claim to do in the name of Jesus. And Jesus's words to those particular individuals was, depart from me. I never knew you. I never had relationship with you. So we could say that if a person is truly indwelt by the Holy Spirit, well, then certainly they can't lose that. But we can't tell from the outside looking in whether or not a person truly is. So at the end of it all, how do we know if a person is truly filled with the Holy Spirit? How do we know if a person truly is born again? One of the ways we'll know, I'm not saying this is the only way, but one of the ways we know is that they endure to the end. So I don't believe that the Holy Spirit, once given to a person, is then taken away, given to them in the sense of being born again by God's Spirit. Uh, but again, we can't judge these things with any kind of perfection looking from the outside. I hope that helps you, Lucho, and thank you for your question. Next question comes from Carmel. Carmel asks this question. We have liberty in Christ to choose to observe the Sabbath. Why have generations of saints made it an sin issue instead? My pastor said, God is not going to help you if you work on the Sabbath. Thoughts. Well, Carmel, I'll give you my thoughts on this. I'm happy to. Let me just say right up front that I think that that person who's saying God is not going to help you if you work on the Sabbath, I think that person is wrong. I think the New Testament is very clear, very specific with us that the Sabbath is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's where we find the fulfillment of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not something fundamentally that we perform to please God. It's something that Jesus fulfilled. And look, we just understand that there are aspects of the Old Testament law that are fulfilled by Jesus and are no longer binding upon a Christian under the new covenant. For example, we believe that the law regarding animal sacrifice was fulfilled by Jesus and no longer has to be fulfilled. We believe that all the institutions of the priesthood were fulfilled by Jesus Christ and no longer must be observed by believers. We believe that all the feasts of Israel were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we include the Sabbath under that, not just because we're dreaming it, but because the New Testament clearly tells us that we should let no man judge us regarding the Sabbath. The Sabbath is an aspect of the law of God that God gave to Israel that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and therefore it is no longer binding upon the believer today. Now, Carmel, you said the right thing here. We have absolute liberty in Jesus Christ to make such a uh, determinate to make such an observance of the Sabbath. If people want to observe the Sabbath, they are perfectly free to do so, but uh, they are not required to do so by the law of, excuse me, by the New Testament uh, given to us. So I, I think it's very important for us to keep that firmly in our mind. And to just say that while a person has the liberty to keep the Sabbath, if somebody wants to keep the Sabbath or observe it in that sense, they have perfect liberty to do so. They are not required to do so under the law of Moses or under the new covenant. So, Carmel, I hope that's helpful for you. Let me go on to the next question here from Junebug who says, Jesus worshiped God the Father during his earthly ministry. Does Jesus still actively worship God the Father now that he's in heaven with the Father? Well, I, I would just put it to you this way, Junebug. We're not really told 
we could say that Jesus Christ still has a relationship of reverence and honor towards his God and Father. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But uh, whether or not the specific terminology of worship is used, we're not given that specific terminology used in the scriptures. So I, I think it's important for us to not go beyond what the scriptures say, but certainly there is a relationship of love and honor and fellowship between the members of the Trinity. Um, but we're not given the specific wording that Jesus worships God the Father there in heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father. So I hope that's helpful for you there, Junebug. Next question comes from Lupe. Lupe asks, what kind of evil does God create? Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7, I form the light and I create darkness. I make peace and I create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Well, Lupe, I, I don't know if I can specifically answer that. God brings things upon the earth that are regarded as evil. Now, since they further God's plan, uh, then certainly uh, we would say that in another measure, they're good. But let me give you an example here. When God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, every person in Sodom and Gomorrah felt that that was an evil thing. It was a terrible thing. It was a calamity for their whole existence. However, we could say at the same time that it was a good and righteous judgment of God. So here we have this difference between how things actually are and how things perceive to man. And sometimes God speaks to us in the form of human perception, how we would perceive things. So the way that I would first uh, answer that question, and Lupe, to be honest, maybe if I gave it more thought, I would give you a more expansive answer. But God speaking in the terms of how things can be understand to you and I, flesh and blood human beings, we see that God speaks to us as people, as people who can understand and people who can gain a knowledge of what he's doing. And so he speaks to us according to our perception. And God definitely performs things in earth that are perceived to be evil by the people of earth by us human beings. And again, for an example, I would just point to any work of God's great judgment, such as Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, Lupe, I'm going to go on to the next question to Barry. Barry asks, in what sense is the Lord not yet king? And here's the question. Uh, then the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his elders gloriously. Perry, I think that's a great question. And let me just put it to you this way. I think it's a very uh, important question for us to deal with in our own day and age because, um, you know, people want to know uh, in what way is God king? And there are some people who think that um, every aspect of Jesus's kingship is fulfilled or active, so to speak, right now in the present day. I would disagree with that approach. I would say that no, instead, the kingship of Jesus Christ is expressed in a definite way now. Jesus is reigning. He is reigning in a sense that he's guiding human history to its a glorious predetermined purpose and end. Jesus is reigning among his people and in the lives of everyone who would name his name. Jesus reigns definitely in the present day. However, I would also say this. I would also say that there is an aspect of the reign of Jesus that is not yet fulfilled. Now, me, with my understanding of the things of the end times, uh, we call that in the realm of theology, eschatology, the things having to do with the end times, the last days, the ultimate fulfillment of all things. I believe that this time of Jesus's ultimate reign over the earth has yet to happen. And I don't believe that it is the church that will create that reign. Now, I know technically people like to say that it will be God who does it through the church. 
But no, I'm, I'm of the opinion that Jesus Christ will return in glory to the earth and then establish such a glorious kingdom. That's how I understand it here. So, I just want you to know that um, in the sense of a active reign uh, over all human existence, basically, on this earth, where he rules and reigns in a way that he immediately governs over the affairs of men, where the governments of this world are under direct submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. In that sense, the reign of Jesus Christ as king has not yet happened. I believe it will happen. I believe it'll be glorious when it happens, but it has not yet happened, and we earnestly await it, uh, the fulfillment of all things. So I hope that's helpful for you there, Lupe. I, I would define it as this, as the active submission of all the governments of the world unto Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ does not reign as king yet in that sense. Okay, next question comes from Barry. And Barry asks this specific question. Um, no, excuse me. That was Barry's question about uh, the reign of Jesus. Let me go on to the question of Andrea. Andrea asks this question. Can God be in the presence of sin? Or is it that sin cannot be in the presence of God? Okay, Andrea, that's a great question. And this is a question that I think... Um, it exposes how we as pastors, as preachers, often speak in a very sloppy way. Now, what do I mean by that, a sloppy way? I mean that we often speak in inexact terms. Okay, so many times pastors say, and I don't doubt that I have said this on occasion, we'll say things like this, that God can tolerate no sin in his presence. And that's why you have to be made right with God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, because God cannot tolerate sin in his presence. And you can't go to heaven with your sin. It has to be cleansed from you before that. Now, again, I, I think that's a well-meaning idea, but the scriptures tell us that there are sinful beings in the presence of God. For example, Satan himself has audience in the presence of God. We see this in the book of Job. We see this in the lines from the New Testament that speak about Satan being in the presence of God, accusing God's children. He's the accuser of the brethren, accusing them before God day and night. God can allow sinful beings in his presence. But at the resolution of all things, as is illustrated for us in Revelation chapters 21 and 22, God chooses to reject from him. It's not that God can't stand to have sin in his presence. I mean, to use a silly illustration, if you remember from comic book, you know, kind of stories, how you have Superman and there's kryptonite. And kryptonite is the one substance in the universe that can afflict Superman and make him weak and et cetera, et cetera. Well, it's not like sin is God's kryptonite and said, well, I can't have it in my presence. No, it's no, it's not like that at all. Of course not. No, God can allow sin in his presence, but he has chosen to have a day when all sin will be put away from him eternally. It'll be consigned to the lake of fire. Uh, Satan himself will be consigned there to the lake of fire. So it's not that God cannot bear to have sin in his presence. It's just that God uh, has determined that he will, in the, uh, at the end, have a judgment that excludes all sin from his presence. So again, that's a very, very good question on that. And uh, we need to be better, I think, in as believers, as uh, preachers, how we speak about these things, because sometimes it's easy for us just to be a little bit sloppy in the way that we speak about things. Um, so we, with a good intention, can say things that aren't exactly true. All right, another question comes from Barry. This is a different Barry than our previous Barry. Uh, Barry asks this question, at what age did you enter ministry? 
how did you come to choose Bible teaching for your profession? At what age is a person qualified to be a senior pastor? Well, Barry, those are some uh, interesting questions. I'm happy to speak to them, of course. Um, I would just put it to you this way. Um, I suppose that I decided to enter ministry when I was 19 years old. Now, I started in ministry, if I could use that phrasing, I started in ministry when I was 16 years old. When I was 16 years old, the pastor of the small church that I was attending asked me if I would like to start teaching a home Bible study in a neighboring town. And I was certainly willing to do it. And so from that point forward, I did. I started teaching this home Bible study. Nothing spectacular happened with that home Bible study. It started with six or seven people. And I taught it for probably about a year and a half until they went off to a school. And uh, in that time, it expanded to probably seven or eight people. There was nothing really dramatic going on with it. Yet there was a sense in myself and in the few people that attended that home Bible study, there was a sense that God was pleased with it, uh, that God was doing something in that group. And so that was sort of my introduction to teaching, to doing ministry. Uh, and I would say by the time I was 19, as I was teaching home Bible studies, I really came to the understanding that this was really God's calling upon my life and that this is what I would be doing. Now, I did not know that that was how I would make my living. When I first became a pastor of some, in some sort at age 19, uh, I was working at a grocery store, stocking shelves at night. And I thought that maybe I might just be the rest of my life working at a grocery store, uh, doing that to pay the bills. And then when um, a certain time came along, you know, I would just be able to uh, uh, teach home Bible studies and love and serve God's people in that particular way. But what happened over time was God just enabled me to be able to have ministry not only as my calling, but also as my vocation, the way that I made my living. Now, there have been times when, especially when I was a planting a church, uh, when I was almost 30, planting another church where I did not draw a income from the church, and instead I worked as a substitute teacher in a school district near me. Uh, so I, I don't think somebody's calling is dependent on making the ministry their uh, vocation, their source of income, but certainly the two can be related. Um, now, you also ask, at what age is a person qualified to be a senior pastor? Well, you know, Barry, I, I just told you that I started being a pastor at age 19, and through God's grace, through providence, uh, listen, uh, th this was God's goodness. It worked out fine for me. Uh, I, I'm of the general opinion that... Many people can begin young in ministry of some kind. And as far as being a senior pastor, I wouldn't put an age on it. But I think that if people will step out and be humble, this is the great failing in many young people, especially young people who find success in their young years. Listen, if you ever see a, you know, servant of God who is enjoying great success at a young age, you need to pray for that person. Uh, not because there's anything dishonest or sinful about that person, no, but it is a special trap to come to early success in ministry. There's a lot of danger in that. And many people survive those dangers just fine and we praise God for it, but not everybody does. Uh, so I wouldn't put an age on it, but I would just say that for many people, I think it can be younger than we think. I don't know, Barry, if that's helpful for you. I, I hope it is in some small regard. All right. Uh, Devin, our moderator, has told me that he's asking everybody in the chat what their favorite flavor of ice cream is. And for me, look, uh, I'm a guy who likes 
a lot of ice cream. I enjoy ice cream a lot. That's no shock or surprise. I don't eat as much of it as I would like to probably, but um, I guess I eat enough. And uh, my wife will tell you and my family will tell you my favorite flavor of ice cream is Rocky Road. You get that chocolate ice cream with the nuts in there, the almonds, and hopefully they're the whole almonds. And what's important about it is the marshmallows need to be those whole marshmallows. There's some ice cream manufacturers who make their uh, Rocky Road ice cream with sort of these streaks of marshmallow. Now, that's not as good at all. It needs to be the whole marshmallow in there, and that's a great ice cream flavor. So that's my contribution to your discussion right here. Um, Yeah, Rocky Road. I think that is the best ice cream flavor, in my opinion. All right, continuing out the other questions. Here's one from Gal. Gal asked this question. What are the most distinctive calls to action that we as born-again Christians should take as an example of our own faith as it is being projected out in our lives? You know, Gal, when I think about a call to action, um, here's something that you can think about in terms of that. Think about the fruit of the Spirit as the New Testament describes it. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, etc. Those important aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, how can we live those out in daily life? How can we show in daily life that we live lives of faith in God? How can we show in daily life that we have joy and peace? So if I were you, I would just recommend going to that list of the fruit of the Spirit And simply asking yourself, how do these things uh, look very practically in somebody's life? Um, How does it look to show love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, all these Christian virtues that are spoken of for us in the Gospels? What does it actually look like to show them in everyday life? I think those are important questions for us to have a call to action. You know, you live in a community. How do you love your community? Listen, I think that one way, if you live in a democratic community, democratic nation, democratic state, or whatever it is that you might particularly live, well, it's by participating in the democratic political process in a way that would promote goodness and blessing in your community. That's a way that you can do that. Um, When you live your life and make your decisions, you can show, I trust in God. Now, of course, that's sort of in the positive way, but there's also a sort of negative call to action, things that we avoid doing because we very consciously say, no, we do not want to practice those particular things. So we avoid things having to do with, you know, drunkenness and sexual immorality. We avoid the things that have to do with lying and cheating others. We avoid the things of hatred and partiality. These are all things that very consciously avoid as believers in Jesus Christ. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the best way that I could answer that particular question for you, though, Gal. Um, we need to live out the fruit of the Spirit. That is our call to action in some way. Now, we can only live the fruit of the Spirit out as we are filled with the Spirit and abiding with the Spirit. But the Holy Spirit won't live that life for us. He wants to live it through us in our daily life. So again, hope that's helpful for you there, Gal. Next question comes from Rial. Rial asks this question, What kind of world philosophies did Paul encounter during his missionary trips? Is there such a thing as diabolic philosophy? Well, Rial, Paul would deal with the Greek philosophies, Stoicism, uh, Platonism, uh, you know, all these different kinds of influences that come from the different Greek philosophies and the great deal of varieties that come through them. There was also some kind of philosophy that came through different mystery religions. Uh, the New Testament time didn't properly deal with Gnosticism as it delivered later, as it developed later, but it certainly dealt with what you might call sort of a early or a proto-Gnosticism. And those had their own philosophy of things that were dealt with. 
So I think it's very important to understand that, um, yes, there are philosophies. I mean, if you want to say a philosophy is, in one simple sense, it's just a way of thinking. How do you think? How do you process? How do you understand things? And Paul encountered uh, philosophies that gave an overly fatalistic view uh, that could be stoicism in some of its forms. Paul encountered philosophies that made a great divide between the spiritual and the material. This led to some of these Gnostic chords beliefs. And these Gnostic beliefs really had the idea that the spiritual and the material were forever separated, but that's not how God thinks. God joins together the spiritual and the material. And most certainly he did that in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, um, false philosophies, philosophies that rise up against the knowledge of Jesus Christ, I would say that they are of the devil. They are diabolical. And of course, we always want to be a little bit careful, maybe a little bit reserved in how we say this is from the devil, that's from the devil. But there's really very little doubt that there are things that are in root satanically inspired, even if the people who further those messages aren't really aware of that satanic connection. So thank you for that question, Rial. And I think we're going to take another question from Rial, who says this, what role do biblical characters play in the book of Revelation? Are we to interpret the book of Revelation more figuratively or literally? Well, Rial, um, if you're talking about biblical characters, I, I, I don't know exactly what you mean by that. Are you talking about Abraham? Are you talking about Samuel? Are you talking about Moses? Are you talking about Enoch? Are you talking, you know, these kind of biblical characters? Well, they have little to do with the book of Revelation. There is a mention in Revelation chapter 11 of two witnesses, and many people have tied those two witnesses to either Moses and Enoch or Moses and Elijah. If I were to tie those two witnesses to any individuals, I would tie them to Moses and Elijah. Uh, but again, th there's that connection. But, you know, we don't have these biblical characters such as Abraham or David or others. They, they may be mentioned, David is mentioned in the book of Revelation, but only as a relation to something else, not him himself as a person. So there's really not much of a role of characters in the book of Revelation, but, but, the book of Revelation is a book that is deeply tied to the Old Testament. You could look at my commentary for the exact figures on this. But there is no book of the New Testament more connected to the Old Testament than the book of Revelation. Uh, almost every verse, it seems, I'm exaggerating a bit here, but almost every verse has some kind of connection to the Old Testament, either a quotation, an allusion, a connection. I think that the key to understanding the book of Revelation isn't understanding 666 and isn't understanding this about the Antichrist or this about the last world government. I mean, those things have their place. But the most important thing with understanding the book of Revelation is understanding the Old Testament and how it connects to the Old Testament. So, if we are to understand that the book of Revelation is vitally connected to the Old Testament, then I would say that we are to interpret it in light of those connections. More figuratively, more literally, I would say we are to interpret the book of Revelation more connected to the Old Testament. Sometimes the book of Revelation very consciously speaks to us in metaphors in word pictures. It says, this is a sign. This is a great sign. Well, then you know it's speaking metaphorically. It's speaking of something that is a great sign, but it's something that points to something else. Okay. But I think that we shouldn't read the book of Revelation as if it were some kind of fairy tale. The signs point to real things. And that's something helpful for us to keep in mind. Okay, let me go on to a question from David. David asks a question, do you have a favorite prophet from the Bible? Oh my, 
a favorite prophet from the Bible. You know, David, that's like asking me to choose between my children. How can you choose between your children? Uh, you just do the best you can. You say, listen, I love all my children. I love all God's prophets. But if you were to back me into a corner, then let me tell you what my favorite prophet would be. It would be the prophet David. You know, the Bible describes King David, David the son of Jesse, as a prophet. And certainly he was because he prophesied mightily, especially of his greater son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has given that glorious title, the son of David. And as David writes Psalm 22, for example, he is a prophet proclaiming forth in a predictive sense uh, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his victory in the empty tomb. That's flat out glorious. Okay, so David was a prophet. If I had to boil down any one prophet that would be a favorite, I'd pick David. But listen, there is so much glory and meaning in each one of God's prophets. Look, I have a written commentary on the entire Bible. And my time spent in books like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah have been extremely deep and rewarding for me. I find great blessing and comfort from those particular prophets and all that they write for us. So thank you for that. Hey, before we move on and see if we have any further questions, I do want to give you a quick update. Uh, we've just got wonderful things going on with our work here at Enduring Word. Uh, the continuing work of getting out the Bible commentary in a lot of different other platforms, but as well translating it into other languages. You know, of the pe money that people donate to our ministry, Enduring Word, which we're very grateful for, we spend more of that money on the work of translation than we do any other single category. It's by a significant margin what we put our greatest investment into. And what's wonderful to see is how God continues to provide for more and more translation work. I won't be shy about this, folks. I'm telling you, we've got a lot of translation work in front of us to do. A lot. A ton. Uh, I would say that in the big picture for our translation work, what we really want to accomplish in translating the commentary into um, the... Uh, 10 most used languages in the world, plus some strategic languages, I would say we're probably 20 to 30% along in that process. So there's a lot more way to go, and it's going to take a long time, but uh, we're very blessed by the people who pray for our work and for those who financially support it. I, I think you're, you're giving to a good thing to provide free Bible resources. And look, not just free but paid advertisement free. You know, our websites, EnduringWord.com and all of the subdomains in the other languages, the subdomain in Arabic, in Spanish, in Chinese, in Italian, in Portuguese, in Russian, all those subdomains, there's eight of them in total. None of them are on paid ads because we want to make a great experience for our readers. So presented free of charge and ad free, it's something good. So we thank you for your partnership with our work. Okay, let me go on to another question here from Bob. Bob asks a question, is there a connection between the Lord's Day in Revelation 1.10 and the Sabbath? Well, Bob, uh, most people would regard, this is really virtually all the commentaries I've read, the Lord's Day in Revelation chapter 1 verse 10 is not a reference to the Sabbath, which would be Saturday, although technically speaking, when we're talking about the Jewish Sabbath, it starts Friday evening and it ends Saturday afternoon or evening, but we just normally would consider it to be Saturday. The Lord's Day in Revelation chapter 1 verse 10 is not a reference to the Sabbath or to Saturday. It's a reference to Sunday. That's what the early Christians called the Lord's Day. They called that Sunday. And there's really no doubt about it. The earliest Christians met together on Sunday. Uh, we could discuss the reasons why they did that, but they did not feel bound to have their meetings on the same day as the Jewish Sabbath. 
Now, I don't think that there's any command from God as to which day Christians meet from. We just know what the pattern was from biblical times in the early church. So Christians have freedom. If you want to meet on Saturday, praise the Lord. If you want to meet on Sunday, praise the Lord. You want to meet on Wednesday, praise the Lord. And no problem with that. But we shouldn't judge others who meet on a different day. Thank you for that question there, Bob. Got a question now from Jesse who asks, what are some good inductive Bible study reading materials? Well, Jesse, um, there's a friend of mine named Dan Frinfrock who has a great inductive Bible study resource, but really he holds his work and presents his work in seminars that he and some associates present all over the world. So I think that's an important uh, resource. But I'm going to look over here and see if I can see on my shelf. Here, let me grab an old edition of this book. The new edition looks different. But I love this book, 30 Days to Understanding the Bible. Man, I think this is a great book by Max Anders. And to me, it's a great beginning to having an inductive understanding of the Bible and sort of a good... Um, survey of the Bible. You know, you understand the Bible so much better if you kind of have an idea where the different books of the Bible go. Uh, you know, this goes here, that goes here. This is how it all fits together. And Max Anders' book, 30 Days to Understand the Bible, that's sort of a, um, of a workbook that you can go through. Uh, I think it's very helpful, and I recommend that book to a lot of people. hope that helps you there, Jesse. Jane asks a question. Jane's question says, how do I discern theologically within the different worship music options? Well, Jane, it's a little bit of a tough question because the basic answer is simple. Jane, you, you got to know what's biblical and what's not. And you got to know that if a song says something that's not quite biblical, you got to know about it. Now, I, I will say this. It's true that we need to judge worship songs by their biblical content. If a song is teaching something that's not scriptural, then we should understand that. And I would say don't sing that song. But there is some measure, how much, I'll leave it up to your individual conscience to decide. There is some measure of poetic license in songs. So sometimes with poetic license, uh, we sing songs because they reflect how things seem by appearance, not necessarily how they objectively are. I'll give you an example. There's a song that uh, was popular a few years ago. I, I think the title of the song was Reckless God. And it talked about in its chorus kind of the reckless love of God. And I know some Christians that were very offended by that. They said, God's love isn't reckless. You're defaming God's name. How dare you say that God's love is reckless? God doesn't do anything that's reckless. You shouldn't sing that song. Now, again, if that's their conscience, I wouldn't oppose it. I, I don't think anybody should be forced to sing a song they think isn't biblical. But by the same token, I would say this. Okay, I understand God's love is not reckless, but it certainly sometimes seems to be reckless. <laughs> it certainly sometimes seems to be extravagant in a way that can seem reckless. When God loves a wretched sinner, it sometimes seems reckless of him to do so. God, why would you love that person? Look at what a loser they are. Look at how offended they are. Look at how they made that. Now, in God's ultimate purpose, we see that that's not reckless, but it can certainly appear to be so. So you have to kind of understand and, and get comfortable. How much poetic license will you allow? And then you got to know the scriptures. You got to be wise enough in the truth of God's word to be able to know when something matches or doesn't match with scripture. You know, sometimes I think about that great song, um, Amazing Grace. And I think how people could uh, object to that. Think of the first few lines of that song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. You can say, okay, stop right there. Grace is a sound? Grace isn't a sound. It's the act of love of God towards us. How can you say grace is a sound? 
And then you could say, that saved a wretch like me. I could see somebody object, wretch? What do you mean? I'm not a wretch. I'm a, I'm a child of God. I'm adopted into God's family. I'm filled with God's spirit. I'm no longer a wretch. You see, if you want to remove every hint of poetic license, then there's a lot more that people could criticize about. So, so we, we need to give some poetic license, and I understand some will be more comfortable granting it than others, but um, we have to know the scriptures and know when things go against. So, Jane, it's basically just kind of saying, um, hey, uh, what would we do with songs that don't match up to what the scriptures say. Do I know the scriptures well enough to discern that? Now, I think that it's absolutely fine for a pastor or elders of a church to say simply this, um, we think that these songs aren't theologically sharp and we're not going to sing them as a congregation. Absolutely fine. And that may differ from church to church as people have different levels of discernment or different thresholds, so to speak, of um, of poetic license. But I think it's important to talk about that and to understand it. So, Jane, you look at the song and you compare it to biblical truth. But that requires you have a good understanding of biblical truth. And then uh, our last question comes from our moderator, Devin. This will be our last question of the day. Devin asks, what advice would you give to a musician serving the Lord with their musical gifts? Well, at least in some regard, I know that that's Devin himself. Devin is quite a skilled musician. You should look him up on YouTube and on iTunes and Spotify and all the other traditional outlets. But if a musician would serve the Lord with their musical gifts, I would say this. Just take the principles that you would use in the application of any gift. First of all, Play skillfully unto the Lord. Um, be dedicated about your craft. Work hard on it. Try to do it in a way. Don't be sloppy. Don't be careless. But serve the Lord with excellence. But then secondly, I think it would be important to say this. You, you need to have integrity as a believer in your character and hopefully growing in integrity. I, I wouldn't say that the requirements for being a musician, you know, in the church, I wouldn't say that those requirements are exactly the same as the requirements for an elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus chapter 1, but I would say that they are generally the same because we, we don't want to automatically say that because a person can play an instrument and honor the Lord in that service, that they are a leader or a ruler among God's people. But yet, we can say that there is a general sense in which all that's true. So, Devin, I would say uh, give attention to character and integrity. Those things are always important, no matter how we're serving the Lord. <laughs> if you're serving God out in the parking lot, helping to park cars, if you're serving God by changing diapers in the nursery ministry, if you're serving God on the platform, playing the drums or guitar, you need to give attention to your character. You need to give attention to integrity, especially with musicians that sometimes can be put in a position where they get more praise, more attention than perhaps um, is helpful, perhaps is good for them. I, I don't want to quite use the word deserving, but there's something to that there. It's important for musicians to keep that. And then I suppose also, just like with anything that would be true in, a, uh, in our modern world, you always want to keep a view out for pride. But again, that's true of anybody who serves the Lord in any way, not uniquely to musicians, but in anybody. You need to, uh, to always keep an eye out for pride. So integrity, character, keep a watch out for pride. Um, make sure that you serve the Lord first. You know, there's a lot of different ways that we serve people, and that's great, but ultimately our service is for the Lord. Hope that's helpful for you all. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, look forward to next week when we can come together for another question and answer session. And I pray that God will continue to pour out his blessing on you 
and help you to understand his word. Again, if you're interested in our Bible resources, go to EnduringWord.com. Also, our app is out there and ready. Get the updates, download the app. Uh, You can be one of the many people who really gain something from the app uh, that we put out there. So in any regard, thank you so much for joining us. God bless you, and we hope to see you soon. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.